The Account and Coca Report, episode number 80. Welcome to the Accard and Coca Report, the podcast dedicated to making sense of healthcare. From policy to economics, from evidence-based medicine to ethics, join us as Drs. Michelle Lacard and Anish Coca diagnose and treat the latest epidemic of healthcare absurdities. Hello, everyone, and thank you again for joining us. Before we get started, a reminder that you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or on your favorite podcast app. You can also support the show on our Patreon page, at patreon.com slash coca. We have a great conversation today with Dr. Marcelo Hockman about ways that doctors can organize to try to repeal bad healthcare laws. Dr. Hockman got his MD from the University of Texas Medical School in San Antonio. He then did a residency in otolaryngology at Stanford University and followed that with a plastic surgery fellowship at Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri. He has subspecialized in the treatment of pediatric facial vascular anomalies and for many years now has been running a very well-reputed solo practice in Charleston, South Carolina. So here we go. Marcelo Hockman, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here with you guys. It's great to have you. And we, um, we you know, we've, we've exchanged emails and, and we've had conversations uh, uh, online on and off for, for several years now. But uh, lately you brought to my attention some work that you've been doing or you've been involved with uh, that uh, I think is very interesting. It's going to be very helpful for, for the audience to know about. But I thought it was interesting also that it's, it's come out of the, the local medical society, uh, at least partly perhaps, uh, out of the, your efforts locally with the medical society. And in general, I haven't been very, uh, you know, we haven't been very positive about organized medicines, which represent typically the establishment. They're typically in favor of the status, status quo and so forth. So uh, tell us a little bit what uh, what you've been involved with and, and how that's working out. Sure. Well, I tend to, to share in general your views about, about organized medicine. I think that, uh, you know, there are a lot of organizations that end up basically existing to exist, you know, and right. um, don't really speak up for doctors. But having said that, locally, I became involved in uh, putting on some medical legal programs um, for the community. And from there, I got more involved and eventually became the president of the Medical Society. And we took it upon ourselves to take on, you know, what could we do that would actually make a difference in the practice of a physician? And, um, you know, there's some things that are just too big to take on and uh, that uh, we could spend well, you guys spend every week talking about, but we decided to take on some things that were pretty tangible, at least in South Carolina, um, that potentially could change the landscape of healthcare here. And our biggest, really my biggest uh, interest in all this is to try to give patients alternatives to the systems. So once patients are given the options of different market alternatives, they always choose that, and um, and for all the reasons you two are very well aware of, you know, you get great quality, better pricing, and costs, real costs, and um, and people tend to be happier. So, having said that, you know, the three things that we decided to address in South Carolina, one was the certificate of need, which is a state requirement here in South Carolina. Um, 
Two um, is the uh, exempting non uh, physicians from non-compete clauses as conditions for employment. And the third thing was to try to get a tax credit or a tax deduction for an individual doctor who performs or provides charitable care. So three, they sound like disparate issues, but in fact, all three really are very related in, in that if a doctor can practice where, where, you know, where he or she wants in the facility that he or she wants to build or the services that he or she wants to provide, then on top of that, there's an incentive to provide true charitable care, um, then you start giving patients um, of all sorts of different means, different alternatives and, and, and options. Okay, well, that sounds very interesting. Let's, uh, for the audience, uh, let's define a little bit what, um, sure. uh, if we start with certificate of need. And we had a show, um, an interview with a, a physician in uh, North Carolina, Carolina who was also involved there uh, trying to repeal certificate of need laws. Uh, but tell us a little bit what these are and wh what they mean for doctors. <clears throat> Sure. The certificate of need is a uh, basically a, a law that says that the state has to give permission for the building of certain facilities or the provision of certain services. And um, this started back in 1974, 73, where the federal government told the states that as a condition of receiving grants from the government, um, that certain things needed to be met. If we're gonna give money to the state, then you have to make sure that there's not duplication of efforts, that the costs are controlled, that there are alternatives for treatment, that quality is maintained. Um, by 1985 or so, the federal government realized that none of those five things actually happened. So the certificate of need, um, though well-intentioned as most things are, really did not do what it was intended to do. So some states immediately, you know, revoked the, the requirement and other states continued it. And we, I live in a state, and North Carolina is one of them as well that you mentioned, where the certificate of need is still there. So what does that mean? That means that if you as a radiologist, which I believe is the case in North Carolina, uh, wants to open up a uh, independent imaging center, you have to get the state permission. You have to prove to the state that there is a need for that facility. Well, guess who doesn't want to have another facility built? The people who already have a certificate of need, right? So if you're a hospital who already has imaging centers, then you don't want an independent imaging center opening across the street. So the incumbents get to vote on who gets a certificate of need or not. And um, so it does all the things that, you know, for this audience are, are going to be very obvious is that in fact, in South Carolina, we have fewer hospital beds than we need for the population that we have. Mm -hmm. um, South Carolina, the state spends twice as much per capita on healthcare and building facilities than um, than other states with you know per capita. So the state is actually spending more money on fewer things because that's what happens when you limit the supply, right? 
So, um, you know, a hospital that we have this going on here in Charleston, a $500 million hospital being built, had that hospital been built by a private company, we know that it would have been built for a third of the price. Um, but by limiting and controlling, um, then of course that artificially inflates costs. So right. how does that impact doctors and patients? Well, patients, for example, if you have to have a, a routine procedure, let's say a carpal tunnel release or an inguinal hernia or something pretty routine, in South Carolina, you cannot have that procedure done outside of a hospital-owned facility. They don't exist. So carpal tunnel surgery, which in a freestanding facility, like you've interviewed on this program before in other states, you know, maybe two or $3,000. In Charleston, it costs about twelve to fifteen because it's being done in a hospital facility. So patients, you know, suffer because they don't have the option of doing it at a more cost-effective place and all the repercussions that happen from that. Sure. So there are highly uh, anti-competitive laws and regulations that are in place in South Carolina and many other states. Right. So we've had 40 years of history that show that they don't work. They basically, the five requirements that were supposed to be met, um, not one not one has turned out to be um, promoted by, by having a CON. In fact, in states where the CON has been repealed, you have all the things that the CON was intended to do, including charity care, which was one of the things that, um, that I forgot to mention. That's one of the five. So what we did is that we uh, ended up sort of beating the drum a little bit locally and uh, met with our local legislators and actually had uh, one of our representatives file a bill to repeal the certificate of need in the South Carolina House of Representatives. And um, we started getting a lot of press. It is a hot topic here. Um, It has cycled on and off, but now the environment is more primed for that. And... um, and it currently sits in the House Ways and Means Committee here in the state. And, um, and we have a year now where we're going to try to, you know, to get that pushed through to the Senate side and then, you know, become law. Great. Walk us through a little bit in a little bit more detail. Um, what, what, what was the first step, the very first step? The very first step, honestly, was hearing patients talk about um, all the issues. I mean, it's clear when you when you talk to people and you give them options, what options they would choose. Well, those options don't exist here. So it's a real issue. I mean, um, you know this very well. I know I'm not talking about anything new, but so when we decided, you know, what are we going to do in my two terms as president, I didn't want it to be, you know, I wanted, I wanted to try to do something that was, um, that was tangible and doable. And um, so I met and we met with, like I said, our legislative delegation and we got a few of them interested. And all it took was getting one of them interested enough to draft a bill and to get it filed. So the, the, tell us where you are. Um, sure. So I'm in Charleston, in Charleston, South Carolina. So it is the second 
biggest city in South Carolina, which is a very small state, um, and um, which is also great because it gives us an opportunity to do some things that in much bigger states would be even more difficult, you know. Um, the, um, the other thing is that South Carolina is, um, in general, a Republican state. Um, and again, individually, it doesn't matter. Um, but the, the tenor here is very uh, pro-market. And um, I mean, we still have the obstacles that you have everywhere else, but at least we have the, um, the appetite for for trying to do some things that would that would change that would reform. But that. but the, the the county society in Charleston, it, it's it's had over the years it's had certain contacts with the legislature. No, and, that really is honestly something that I sort of started the last you know five or six years. I mean, um, I've just been interested in again trying to impact and and now the society itself has taking okay. this on so okay. it took a little bit of individual effort but now it's, it's so did effort. you have to find to find a, a lawmaker who'd be sympathetic to that point of yes. view or did you know some or okay both okay. of those so you know i knew who they were and okay um talked with them and found one that she decided to take it on so great and was it hard to convince the legislature it doesn't it sounds like it was reasonably easy or i mean because the, the no, argument is compelling actually, so, so it's interesting <laughs> the easy part has happened and that was getting a bill filed i mean anybody can file i mean you know within reason you know you can get somebody to file a bill but now all of a sudden all the interested parties come out of the woodwork you know so the we had a hearing where five doctors went from Charleston to Columbia, which is the capital, mm -hmm. um, to testify at the Ways and Means Committee where this bill was sitting, and 30 hospital administrators um, were there um, <laughs> to oppose us. Um, and so that is where now the real difficult part happens is getting it through the, the legislature and um, and that's why we've now sort of passed this project on to and it, we've created a separate coalition a 501c4 which is a, a, a lobbying organization basically because that's what it's going to take is to take to lobby the legislature and fight against the okay hospital system and then eventually get it to the governor's desk as a law. And that's um, that organization that now is independent. Uh, it is not, independent. It's not part of the uh, part of the medical society. Correct. The, the CCMS, the medical society, is still going to be involved, but in order to do this, we have to raise money in right. order to affect the the process. And that's what the medical society is really not in a position to do that. Um, but by having an independent organization, we can get funding from throughout the state, not just Charleston. Okay. And um, and, and uh, the medical how um, was the medical society? Um, you you've been the you said you mentioned you you've been the president for the last year or two or so you've been involved on the board of the medical society for a while. I have. Um, and 
was it difficult for you to convince your colleagues that this was a good cause to, uh, to push forward in its early stages? Very. It's interesting because, you know, in the in the environment where we are, where about half of the physicians are employed by hospital systems, it's very hard to get individual doctors engaged. Right. You know, so when doctors are employed, all of a sudden, a lot of things become secondary, even though they affect their practice greatly, the incentives are a little bit different. And the, um, unfortunately, the, the mentality, the culture starts changing. And um, so it's very difficult really to get doctors engaged in this. The mm -hmm. independent doctors get it, the patients get it, but the big, big players, which are, you know, the academic center and the big hospitals, you know, now they have pretty sizable staffs. And, right. um, and those doctors are in an in a interesting position, <laughs> you know, because they are now employed, right? So they have to follow the agenda of the employer. So sure. it's been an interesting conversation sure. with, with physicians and the administrators. And, you know, in, uh, I don't know what it, how it is in, in uh, Charleston, but uh, here in San Francisco, you, you know, Kaiser Permanente is a huge sure. uh, employer of doctors. Sure. And um, traditionally, they were not all that interested in the past about getting involved in the medical societies. They were doing their own thing in the periphery. But about 10, 15, 20 years ago, I don't know, uh, some time ago, maybe 15 years ago, they decided to really... So they would... It used to be that it was an option. The, 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 um, the doctor who was part of Kaiser, it was up to him or her to join the medical society if they wanted to. But then 15 years ago, Kaiser ended up paying for all the doctors their membership dues. Right. And they re-infiltrated. And, and, and it's not just Kaiser. Now the others did. You know, the other big groups did the same thing. So, so they, re they, they recognized that there's a strategic um, you, you know, interest in having the employed doctors be part of, right. <laughs> of the, the medical societies. And, yeah, so the and same thing is happening right. here. It's interesting that um, as these hospitals buy and spread out throughout the state, their staffs now include more independent doctors. So if they buy a hospital in another town, mm -hmm. which is what the academic center's done recently, about half of the staff, the medical staff, doctors, if those hospitals are community doctors. So they're finding themselves that they're, it's in their better interest to start re-engaging with the medical societies because half of their staff is going to have, you know, some opinions that they probably want to, to be a part of. So, right. but, um, so anyway, it's kind of interesting. The, you know, when you mentioned organized medicine, the South Carolina Medical Association, which is the association of all the county medical societies and a subsidiary of the AMA, essentially, um, we, we meaning the Charleston County Medical Society, we had uh, 20 delegates at that meeting. I had never participated. In fact, it's kind of funny. As the president of the medical society where the meeting is being held, this year it was in Charleston, it's traditional for the president to welcome the convention to the city, right? right. And they called me and I said, I'd be happy to do that. And they said, well, would you mind joining 
the, the, the South Carolina Medical Association. You, so you, you, I've always been a little averse to, to organized medicine. Right. Now I find myself in the middle of it. Right. So, you know, so for, anyway. for, for, for the audience who are not physician, uh, we should at least say that um, even though the, the AMA speaks in the name of all physicians, you know, and they, they have a... See, and and then at the state level, the state counties, uh, the state society, um, the state association, medical association, will tend to to speak in the name of all the physicians. Physicians are not required to belong, and most physicians do not belong to either their state uh, society or the the AMA. Many many physicians will belong to the local county society. Um, typically, I think at least it's been my experience that most physicians. Would at least pay the dues to belong to the local county society, but the local county societies operate. You know, the fact that you belong to a county society doesn't mean that you have that much influence on the positions that what that the county society wants to take. Uh, is that is that correct? Well, it's I mean, interesting. I, I so it, it, tell me a little bit on... what, what your understanding of. Uh, uh, yeah, so it, so it's really interesting. So the AMA, of course, has the perception from the public that it represents all doctors and in fact very often speaks as if it were representing all doctors when in fact you know less than 20 or 25 percent of physicians uh, my understanding is like 15 percent or less yeah or and it's less, it's right. you know it's certainly a, a minority however they have a fair amount of influence you know i mean a very powerful lobbying group that kind of thing so at the state level it was interesting because the three things that I mentioned that we're pursuing, we brought to the medical association to the state level to as resolutions for the medical association to um, take up as policy. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of opposition from the organization. Um, from the state, was, the state uh, association, the state the medical SCMA, association. Yeah. And uh, it was very interesting that on the floor of the House of Delegates, which is, you know, the way it's set up, um, our resolutions were really kind of eviscerated. Um, and <clears throat> so we got up and, and objected and defended them. And what was so great is that all the members that had to vote on the floor. So this was no longer just the committee. And all three of our resolutions were then approved with the original language and are now policy of the SCMA, which is really important for us locally because now the SCMA that has a lobbying group as policy supports repeal of the certificate of need, exempting doctors from non-competes, and um, and the tax incentive for charity care. So we actually now have the state organization has now by policy has to support this. I mean that is so it's it's helpful. Right. You know, it will right. be helpful. Right. Actually. Right. But it's it clearly was not a given that they would support something that on the surface most doctors ought to support. I mean you would think right. Yeah, it's, it, again, it's very interesting. You know, I've heard from doctors on both sides. We had a, uh, an event with the legislators, a couple of the representatives, a couple of the senators. These are state level. And we had about 60 doctors showed up. And, um, and we talked about all three of these issues. And, um, you know, there was some vocal opposition from certain physicians on each one of those. Well, actually, the charity one, that was not opposed. But 
um, both the non-compete and the CON, it's interesting, you know, depending on what personal situation you're in, some doctors actually um, favor the CON and favor non-competes, which right. Right. You know, a little interesting. What, 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 were the, uh, what was their reasoning for favoring <clears throat> CON? Was it employed doctors arguing for that? Or? Absolutely. Yeah. So it was always employed physicians, you know, and the two big specialties that spoke um, in general, I'm not saying that I'm speaking for the specialty, but it sounded like radiologists and um, um, hematology oncology. So again, two specialties that are very tied to hospital activities and um, and have arrangements where it does benefit them to be, you know, part of the system. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, but overall, there was wide support. We polled the membership, and it was greater than 80, 85 uh, percent favoring repeal um, of both of those things. Okay, <clears throat> and um, and then finally, one one last thing here: uh, the getting your the bill drafted by this one lawmaker. I mean, you you really had to be to speak to be part of of a local county society to get that person to do this, didn't you? I mean, I think uh, you as a private doctor, you know, walking into, you know, knocking on the door of a legislature and say, listen, you know, these laws should be repealed. Can you, can you draft a bill that wouldn't have gone as far uh, as it, as it did. Right. Or. That's right. I mean, I think it takes developing a relationship with, with uh, the people and having the right legislator, you know, this isn't a new idea. You know, this has happened before in South Carolina, Um, but the timing is such that now it seems like the CON at least is primed for, in other states surrounding us, so I have Florida just last month repealed their CON, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, so, you know, as as I've said in in some of the things that that, uh, the meetings that, you know, the intellectual war about whether the CON is a good idea or not, that has been won. There is right. nobody but those who have a CON certificate that thinks it's a good idea anymore. I mean, it really is just a matter now of fighting out the details. And uh, these hospitals have very big vested interests in trying to keep competition out. Right. Um, I mean, it's, their models are not very good, <laughs> um, financially sustainable to have a small independent hand surgery center open up across the street, you know, that's going to be doing procedures at a third of the cost and with, you know, as good quality or better quality and better service. Right. Okay, tell, tell us about the non-compete. I'm sorry, Anish, you wanted to, uh, I was going to move to the, ask about the non-compete uh... I guess I guess the the question uh, is that you know the argument is that um, uh, there's obviously some amount of activity that takes place at large hospital systems um, that uh, always capability wise is beyond what you know a small specialized center will do. So how do you um, how do you preserve uh, some of that? I, as an example, you know, there's many different procedures that can be done at small specialty centers, but then there's always the case where everyone, all physicians, um, certainly 
kind of uh, you know nod their heads and say, hey, this is someone that requires the type of infrastructure that we can't provide. So I guess there there has to be some type of differential um, between you know large hospital systems and uh, small specialty centers. Um, is there some merit to the argument that we have to somehow protect that in some way uh, in terms of you know a higher paying them a higher rate for X, Y, and Z? Well, I think that there's there is a role, and there always will be a role for hospitals. Um, so liver transplants and right. you know highly complex you know neonatal care. I mean, there are all sorts of things that obviously are going to require a different type of setup. However, those should be able to exist in a different model or in a different environment where, you know, these hospitals, they, and they will say this, is they depend on the high margin procedures to support the low margin stuff, right? right. Well, yeah. in our private practices, you know, we kind of do the same thing, but we tailor our low margin stuff, you know, to do it as efficiently and cost effectively and all that as possible. But those incentives are gone in the big systems. So I have no ill will towards the hospitals. I really don't. I mean, somebody accused me of saying you want the hospital, a particular hospital here in town to go under. And I, and I really don't. But there is disruption, and I'm sure you guys know Clive Christensen and all that, you know, is not going to happen from within the system. So you have to start. My goal is really just to give alternatives. How the liver transplant center figures it out, well, they'll figure it out. I mean, there, there is a role for that, but and I don't know what the answer is for that, but I do know that there are a lot of people who are financially distressed uh, because they are forced to have care at at unreasonable prices in order to support something that they have nothing to do with, you know. So, I mean, it's the big, big picture is very difficult to fix, but, um, but you're right. It's not an easy thing, and there's always going to be a role for the hospitals. I, th I just don't know what that role yeah, is. Yeah, but, you know, I, I think they've lost their credibility a little bit. I mean, they've been crying wolf for years, decades, saying, you know, we need, you know, we can't have these uh, – you know, uh, competing uh, entities take away the healthier patients because our, you know, our margins are ra razor thin, and we're going to go under. They're they're not. That's completely fictitious. I mean, they, well, they, they have a lot of padding. Line. They have a lot of padding. Yeah, and well, they can operate more efficiently. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There are lots of states where the CON doesn't exist, and the hospitals are doing fine. Right. You know, so that is not the so the CON itself is not what's protecting them and maybe protecting them in a given particular location but in the big scheme of things they can operate without the con and the public and doctors in general would benefit from that right do you and what um how do you answer um concerns that i'm sure politicians and certain community members will raise about the fact that uh hospital systems are such big time drivers of the local economy. So uh, sure. um, is there, are you going to induce a recession if you are successful in, you know, in, in, in kind of uh, putting through and taking away the CON laws and if the hospital makes less money, that means 
they'll they'll have fewer hospitalists they'll hire fewer nps the local real estate uh, economy will probably take a hit because you know there'll be fewer jobs there how would you answer that yeah so that's actually a, a really really important point and part of what the coalition is going to do is so part of what it takes for the legislators to vote is that you have their back because you're, what you just said is exactly right. So that is what the local business fund or person will go to their legislators, you know, office and say, we can't have, you know, this hospital closed or this clinic closed or that kind of thing. So the legislator is not going to vote to repeal the CON because in his community, you know, these people are concerned. Well, the reality is, and this is where the coalition's role is going to be, is to show them and convince them that in fact, the opposite is what's happening. There is a county here in South Carolina, uh, a rural county, and South Carolina is very rural, um, which is where all those problems that you mentioned actually are problems. In the cosmopolitan areas, it's not as much of a problem, you know. But in the rural communities, a lot of these little hospitals are closing and, you know, patients are having to go farther and travel more distances to get care. Um, and you say, well, how does the CON affect that? Well, just a month or two ago, after 10 years of a battle between two hospitals in York County, South Carolina, finally, they dropped the CON fight between the two. So now one of them has permission to build another hospital. Well, in the meantime, for 10 years, the citizens of that county could have had all sorts of services, right? So the argument that they use that, well, if the CON law goes away, you know, it takes away the protection. Well, the reality is that the exact opposite is happening and you will have smaller and I've even told the administrators of the hospitals, I said, why don't you get into the business of opening up a smaller thing? I mean, there's nothing that says that a hospital can't open up a smaller entity, right? Um, the problem is that their financial model is just not set up to do that. They don't know what things cost. Um, so I'm not worried about us inducing a recession, but what I am very focused on is exactly what you said is helping the legislators feel comfortable that in fact in their particular community and this is where the lobbying comes into play um and our grassroots effort is to convince them that in fact that's not going to happen right. and it hasn't happened in what, what anish was saying uh, you know being the devil's advocate there i mean it's a version of the broken window fallacy because you know then you don't want any patient to be well you want you want more sick people right you want because if we have more sick people, then we have, you know, a, a, more business for the hospitals and whatnot. And if patients become well, you know, so so it doesn't it doesn't hold water. And 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 if things are, are more expensive to it comes out of, of somebody's pocketbook anyway, you know, at the end of the day. So at the end of the day, the local businesses are paying more in premiums. They're paying more in, in healthcare expenditures and whatnot. And therefore, they can't consume. So, so it, it it's backwards. It it hurts the economy. I mean, all these anti-competitive laws end up working. Uh, you know, right. hurting the economy. Of course, they 
the existing businesses can make a case that they're going to get hurt, but but the community at large will will not and will, right. will, will get better. In 2020, you know, the, there's also we have a governor's race here in South Carolina, and he's very, um, very his number one priority is is the economy, and um, and part of our goal or role is to show them. And he we've already spoken with him, and he's in favor of repealing the CON. And we'll take a stand once it gets farther along in the legislative process. But um, exactly the opposite of what the intention is, is what's happening. Um, and you will actually, in fact, get more businesses, more entrepreneurial activity, you know, more activity in general, um, the less restrictions there are. I mean, we know that that's the way it works. It kind of feels like that there's little question that in the long term that this is it'd be a healthier place to be because you'd be getting um you know equivalent value uh, or, or or better value at at lower prices right um but i think um it probably requires um some honesty and some frankness and honestly requires some politicians with some some you know uh with 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 the willingness to take things on the chin uh, because in the short term certainly uh, things may get may get worse in the short term. There may be stories written in the local newspaper about you know um, so and so hospital having to contract and and what those downstream ripple effects are. And so I don't know. I hope I really hope that um, you know these type of things are successful. Um, but it, it always concerns me when it has to rely on politicians who uh, have to take a longer view of things because you know the. Politicians seem to, in general, uh, be so focused on that four-year or two-year, whatever you know, election uh, cycle. So, um, so anyway, so I hope I hope which that's is the, that's you the know, message. it's an interesting point because um, you know the 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 other episode we had with uh, Dr. Singh, who's uh, taking on, the, you know, he's going by the route of the courts, right? He's actually suing the state as opposed to going the route of uh, uh, the political process. Right. What was so, your sense, uh, um, Marcelo? Yeah. So you know, so we, you know, so they've used the Institute for Justice, the IJ, um, is who's helping them in North Carolina. You know, right. so that's right. They're they're suing the state, um, which is another which is another uh, another avenue. He, um, the IJ, is ta has taken on his case because as a private citizen, they will do that. So they will represent a citizen, but they won't represent, um, they have to have a case, you know, right. so we're talking more about it than an idea. Um, so the, the legislative, now for the, the non-competes, that's where we can talk about, you know, some other, you know, um, things, but, um, but for the CON in South Carolina, it's the repeal is the way. Okay. Let's talk about the non-competes, uh, because that, um, uh, you know, one, one can, uh, it can give somebody pause, uh, from, at least from a free market standpoint, to, 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 to think through the whole argument. So tell us what non-compete compete clauses are currently and what it is you're trying to repeal. Sure. So our, our, um, our issue is to exempt physicians from non-complete clauses as conditions for employment. 
So it's interesting. Um, if you look at, again, we were talking about the AMA, um, the ABA, which is the lawyers, um, they have a, a rule, um, a rule model for ethical behavior, which states that, which I'm paraphrasing, but basically prohibits non-compete clauses um, as conditions for employment of attorneys. So the whole profession has taken this as an umbrella statement and the states then follow suit. So the lawyers have, in essence, are exempt from non-compete clauses um, right. because the attorney-client privilege is thought to be so sacrosanct that it shouldn't be impeded and, and that kind of right. thing. Again, for the well, audience, the non-compete clause is, you know, if, if at least for, for doctors or, you know, the, the parallel would be for lawyers, but if you're a doctor, and you you uh, you get hired by a medical group, for example. That medical group, right now, the non-compete clause would be a clause in the employment contract that says that if you leave the group, you have to you cannot practice down the street. You have to move, you know, to a different geographic location to open your new practice uh, because because otherwise you might take your patients with you and that would hurt the group. So so these are fairly common clauses that are in employment contracts for physicians. Well, the, the issue is that um, non-compete clauses were originally designed for very high-level managerial executive positions, protecting intellectual property, and actually protecting proprietary information that a high-level person might have. And what's happened over time is that the non-competes have filtered down to even the lowest paid workers. In fact, um, franchises like Jimmy John's and McDonald's, you know, use non-compete clauses and have been challenged on that. So even sandwich makers have mm -hmm. been, uh, had to sign a, a non-compete clause, you know. So what that does is, like you mentioned, is it, it restricts in the future a person's ability to change employment. You know, they have to be, you know, either can be geographically uh, delineated and or time restricted. And um, so as a, um, so that's basically what the non-compete says is that you will not work for a competitor, a competitor or competing entity within a certain radius and for a certain amount of time in the future. So you're doing that, you know, proactively, you're giving up your right to future employment, which is, which is a problem. Um, imagine that you finish your fellowship and your first job out, you now have established yourself in, in this community and, and now um, you decide you want to do something different and you literally, literally have to move for X amount of time before you can come back to the same place and work for the hospital across the street or the clinic across the street. Right. Or that kind of thing. Right. And we see that all the time. So the, um, the AMA has been very wishy-washy over the years taking a stand. And that's why I brought out the ABA, which was very clear. And now the entire profession has taken that stand. So one of the problems that we have is that <clears throat> the states now have all sorts of different 
ways of dealing with non-competes. There are three states that uh, bar non-competes completely. Um, so out of 50, California, North Dakota, and Oklahoma, there are no non-compete clauses. Um, and then of the, of the states that do allow non-competes, about half of them have specific exemptions for physicians and other healthcare workers. And then there are a couple of other professions that are, um, that are included in there because our doctor-patient relationship is, is, is seen that by affecting the mobility of the doctor, the patient is, um, is restricted in their ability to choose their doctor, to follow their doctor, continuity of care is, um, is, uh, is affected. So there's a great argument for doctors being one of the ones that, that should be exempted. The AMA has not taken that stand. Um, so the states say, well, if your profession doesn't take that stand, then you know, what, why should we? Mm-hmm. So now you have a big hodgepodge where states have their two different ways that non-competes are being dealt with. One is by statute. So some states have laws that ban non-competes or that define them in certain ways. And then there are other states where it's defined by case law. So somebody files a lawsuit and that leads to, you know, the Supreme Court deciding something and then, you know, Mm -hmm. and that's where we are in South Carolina. We don't have any statutes to repeal. Um, So you either have to create a bill that says doctors are exempt from non-competes, which is pretty difficult to do um, in that situation. With the CON, we actually have something that we can try to get rid of. Here, we're trying to create a negative for something, you know. Um, And so that's where the the legal route is maybe the route that is possible, um, you know, for the non-competes in some some states. But... um, the the use of non-competes has gotten so broad and so you know throughout the whole economy that um i mean it affects the general economy I and mean, this is not just doctors now i mean do you dr hoffman have a have a partner do you have any do you have any partners? are you solo i'm solo independent and i had a partner once and i did not have him sign a non-compete and he opened an office two doors down for mine and it didn't change my world at all. <laughs> so, so how, how do you, you know, I mean, obviously there's a certain amount of infrastructure that you have. You're a facial plastic surgeon, um, right? Um, Correct. I, you have, you own or lease your facility. You, um, uh, you know, may have anesthesia there. I mean, you have a certain, there's a certain amount of capital investment that you've done, that you've taken a risk. Um, how, so yeah, how do you, how, how do you best deal with that for, Meaning, for, to, to support a somebody who you employ, um, how do you go about trying to make it so that it's not you know taking advantage of you and where you know you kind of allow for uh, him or her to survive for two or three years, build up a practice, and then you know move that practice. Up. So that that's a great point, and um, and in fact. When I mentioned that uh, legislative event where there were doctors that were opposed, the non-compete was the one where there was a little bit more give and take between physicians because exactly like you said, well, what if I bring in a partner and I spend all this money 
getting them started or getting her started and then they leave. Well, and that's a, that's a traditional argument to maintain the non-compete. Mm-hmm. However, you can have as a condition of employment some sort of restrictive covenant that is, that is negotiated ahead of time. So one of the, the ways that you can reform the non-compete issue is transparency. You know, very oftentimes, the vast majority of times, as a matter of fact, people are signing a non-compete on the day that they are signing their contract. It wasn't discussed ahead of time. I mean, it was just part of the contract now. And now they're in a position where they really don't have the opportunity to, to do anything about it. So I could say, you know, Anish, I want you to come in and join me. But if you leave me in the first year, you owe me $75,000 because that's what I'm going to invest in trying to get you started. If you leave me in the first two years or in the second year, then you owe me 50000 I mean, I'm making up numbers, you know. Right, right, but that could be something say, well, you know what? I don't think I like that. I think it should be fifty. Well, you can come up with a an agreement. But what happens now is the mere fact that there is a non-compete as part of the employment contract has a chilling effect on people changing jobs. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so it's not that you couldn't set it up so that there's some individual agreement. The problem is that non-competes are being used as a blanket thing. So, you know, whatever academic center you're in, in your city, you know, I'm sure that CHOP or, you know, UPMC or whatever, they have everybody sign the same exact contract. So okay. what's, uh, what, what can you Next say to call. the perception, uh, what can you say to the perception that uh, they're not enforceable or what, what's, what's the case uh, uh, record of uh, yeah. non-compete clauses being challenged? Right. So that's, that's again, you're bringing up a really important point is that that is what people say, oh, well, they're not enforceable. Well, the reality is just having that in place, again, deters people from doing what they would have wanted to do. Um, so if very few doctors will actually take on their employer, um, you know, when they want to stay in the same town or, or whatever, um, because they don't have the financial, um, you know, ability to take them on or the time where they've already set up routes and they really don't want to move all those kind of things. So they, and this is where the courts look at this as purely a contractual agreement. And, and that's a problem because, the court just looks at it like you're a smart doctor, you signed it. You know, if you didn't want to sign it, you shouldn't have signed it. Well, the reality is the reality is that you really don't have much of a choice. It's kind of like you want the job, you sign the contract, you know, yeah, again, but, because it's not negotiated ahead of time. Right. But on the other hand, that argument seems to have some weight to it. Uh... I mean, if we're going to be, you know, libertarian and pro-free market, and we don't want the sort of the, the nanny well, states. Uh, the problem, Michelle, is that uh, yeah, I think you have um, the, the problem is compounded because I, I see both sides of it. The problem here is, is that uh, uh, there's so few options in, 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 in many places that 
um, you know, if there were, you know, say 25 different options in terms of becoming a cardiologist in terms of where you could go in a certain geographic area, I think you'd have a lot of competition and you'd compete on all these things, right? I mean, you'd have a varying different, a varying number of contracts you could sign. And, you know, if, if, if one of those 25 employers tried to do something stupid, like, or tried to do something that was onerous, uh, that, that was like a restricted covenant that, you know, was, was some 25 mile radius thing, you know, it wouldn't hold because there'd be 24 other choices uh, and all those folks would be competing, competing for you. Um, but you have this, you have this, you know, part, part of the issues is that you have the system where, you know, you, you essentially, you know, if you want a job in Philadelphia, you have, you have two options. <laughs> and so since there is well, no right, competition, but, you have like this, this de facto uh, monopoly that's, that's created that kind of disadvantages, uh, you know, the, 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 you know, the young kid who's trying to, to get a job. I agree, but I, I so I, I would counter the non-complete clauses. I'd rather they be countered though through the legal process because I think they really, it's a form of um, of indenture because it, it gives the company a claim on, on what you're going to do after the contract is expired. And and I think that would be a cleaner way of of dealing with them once and for all rather than have the legislature come and insert its own <clears throat> ways and saying, well, for these professions, we don't want non-compete non clauses. For those professions, we do. And then say, oh, because, you know, medicine is non-compete, you know, there aren't enough jobs for doctors and the fellows after, you know, even though they're in their late 20s or 30s, when they get a job, when they when they're getting their first job, they're too stupid. To, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm concerned about all these sort of arguments that would be brought yeah. in. And I'd rather have the courts uh, say, you know, uh, uh, clearly would, that that a yeah. non-compete clause is is legally a form of. Uh, I, I would rather have. I mean, why have? Well, I would rather have neither. I'd rather uh, we create. I mean, we're all arguing for a system where you know we have lots lots more uh, competition and lots more employers, essentially, right? Um, and I think that that by itself, you know, w would solve a lot of these uh, issues without the courts or uh, legislatures having to get involved. So it seems like we have we have we have we have a problem that's created. We have all a bunch of natural, well, not naturally, a bunch of these artificial monopolies, uh, these squatters that are, are, are you know these, these sprawling health systems where you, yeah, you but, literally, but, yeah. But you could have the the employer make the the argument argue to the you know if you, if if they're going to be. If you're going to use a utilitarian argument, you could have the employer saying, "You know, our margins are so thin that we have to have these non-compete <laughs> no, 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 clauses. I'm Otherwise, saying, you go out of business." No, no, that's why. No, no, <laughs> I'm, I'm saying to create a system that we're all talking about. Where, and I think all of us right. would would be okay with systems where uh, you don't have the game that's rigged for these large systems, and sure. uh, and so you you have, uh, you know, and and you see it playing out in some scale. The question is, what do you do about these massive uh, uh, systems that now essentially are? anti-competitive and, and uh, you know, have so much power with, with legislature that, you know, I don't know, I don't know if do whether Dr. Hoffman's 501c is going to raise enough money to be able to counter this other 501c. You know, it's this arms race. And it right. seems like the only way to fix this arms race is to have some act of, you know, suddenly you have libertarians that are okay with some act of, uh, 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 you know, regulatory uh, uh, power that says, okay, we're going to have the FTC come in and, you know, invoke antitrust and, and break up and break up, uh, you know, these, these large companies. So, you know, it, it's such a, I don't know. I, it seems like, it, it seems like a tough nut to, uh, to crack without something having to give. Right. Right. No, it is, it is of, of the two, the non-competes is actually a, a more difficult problem if you try to carve it out just for doctors, which of course is what we want to do because we're a medical society and, you know, we can't right. take on, 
you know, the world. Right, but right. but the reality is that non-competes are very well documented, hurt the economy in general. Hmm. You know, so you've got the bigger systems, you know, are, and Michelle, you, you know, you're more of an economics expert than me, but they're, you know, have developed into monopsonies, you know, where, where they are controlling wages and they're controlling, you know, the, um, the alternatives because there's so few of them and they're so big. Um, so they're not really monopolies, you know, they're, they're controlling the other side of, of the, um, of the equation, but low level workers, sandwich makers are being subjected to non-competes, you know, and that's just, um, right. It is only benefits the employer. And like I said, I mean, you can set up, the courts are very loath to get into the way of something that is purely a contractual agreement. So if it, if it were truly was just a contract between you and the hospital that you negotiated, then yeah, you signed it. But it's a little bit different than that. I mean, right. the same uh, and I, I, I agree. It's, and it's not a good thing. You, you know, it's funny because there will be libertarians who disagree with me uh, because there are libertarians who actually think that it's okay to sell yourself into slavery. Right. They, they will, they will be sort of very, uh, they, they will use, they'll be very radical in their defense of private contracting. It says, so long as it's voluntary, the state has nothing to do with it. And, and I disagree with that. I, so I don't think it's correct to slave yourself, to, to sell yourself into slavery. I think it's a contradiction in terms that it's, it's, uh, it's inherently in conflict with, with the freedom of human nature and the freedom of the will. Um, and, and therefore, that's how I would like those cases to, you know, the non-compete uh, problem to be argued and sort of decided. I mean, if I had, if I had my wishes, I would have it decided on a, on a, on a legal uh, way, uh, sort of, a, you know, by the courts saying as what's, this is outside of the ba the boundaries of what can happen, even if it's voluntary and if it, even if both parties agree. Well, but, and again, you know, now we have a mishmash, you know, where some states it's by statute and other states that's right, legal. So right. it just depends on where you live. You know, the transparency part of the reform would be that, you know, you in fact are able to see the non-compete during the, during the employment phase. I mean, during the, Mm -hmm. You know, where you're being, um, uh, what's the word, um, courted, you know, for the job when you're being interviewed and all that, that in fact that it is common knowledge that you have a non-compete and that you can then negotiate that non-compete. Right. You know, um, that would make it a step closer to saying, okay, well, once you sign that, you've agreed to the terms, you know. But right. um, like Anish said, I mean, there just aren't any options for the vast majority of people. Mm -hmm. Very good. And, uh, you know, the last tidbit maybe on, on the, um, the um, uh, giving a tax, tax deduction for doctors who, who do charity work. Sure. So, you know, charity care has been an integral part of medicine, right? Always, you know. Um, and now, again, getting back to the whole hospital systems, is that the hospitals actually get um, compensated for, quote, charity care, which is this mixed bag of uncompensated care, disproportionate share, um, all sorts of, you know, federal tax, this, you know, incentives. 
Whereas the doctor who's actually providing the service doesn't get the same benefit. So the Tim Scott's federal bill was to amend the IRS code so that if you provided pro bono care, and again, the relationship has to be established prior to the provision of the care. You can't bill for something and if you don't get paid, call it charity. That's not it. Mm -hmm. You have to have a pre-established relationship with a with a, a charitable organization that provides medical care, and it's understood that that care is being given for free. And then the IRS, this is in the Senator Scott's bill, would then give that individual doctor a deduction equal to what Medicare would have paid for that service. So there was, you know, there were set amounts, there were limits, I and mean, you couldn't be a retired doctor and be making money off of, quote, charity care, you know. So we just took that same bill and changed it to the South Carolina income tax then. So in South Carolina, um, you know, we have far fewer or far less amount of charitable care being done because as a doctor, if you are employed, and you want to treat a patient for free, they won't even get in the door. I mean, you can't do that. You have no control as an employee doctor to be able to do something for free. So then the hospital goes through all these machinations and ends up getting reimbursed, and then that doctor gets you know, essentially nothing. If, however, a physician had the ability to practice wherever they wanted to, and had an incentive to provide charity care, all of a sudden, you know, the whole concept of private charitable care would, would, be, would improve. There'd be more doctors who would say, I'll do that, you know, but right now it's a burden for a lot of right, people. Right, right, right. It, it's, uh, it seems they, they, they feel they're taken advantage of. Um, that, sounds, that sounds great, but I, I, as I imagine, it may be the most difficult uh, thing to convince the legislature to uh well so on that one we have a draft bill actually uh, we have a legislator who liked the idea and so now it's sitting in the department of revenue because now that affects the state budget right, right? so now it becomes you know a whole different ball game and again you know it's we're treading in waters that are very unfamiliar to us, but, but I mean, it's worth trying, you know, I mean, at the very least, you know, raising public awareness about these things, you know, and uh, trying to give alternatives. I mean, I think if people are given ways out of the system, they will gravitate out of the system. Right. And, um, and that's the only way to change it is, you know, at the, at the low, at the, at the small local level, I believe. You know, Marcelo, as much as I don't like to think about the law and legislature and government's involvement and whatnot, this discussion has been very uh, informative, uh, informative and um, sort of stimulating because it forces you to confront your thoughts about, you know, what we're doing, how we're doing it, how we're organizing ourselves. And it's, it's very interesting. And I think um, you've shown that some, some good things can happen and should be pushed. And, and there are things that, you know, from a practical standpoint, you have to do uh, in an organized way through the current channels that are available to us, meaning the, the local county societies, maybe the state societies. And, and it's important to do it that way. And it's important to engage with, you know, for those, those of us who 
who may not like the government's uh, involvement, but nevertheless, I think it's important to um, uh, to recognize that it's uh, it's one way to to change things for the better. And uh, my disclaimer for all of this is that I have a very very vested interest in doing all this because one of my sons just got into medical school. So right. I, um, I want to make sure that when he gets out of this whole thing 10, 11 years from now, that he has some options, you know, and at but least you know, that, that's, choose, Right, you know? that's great. But that's testimony to how, how well you must be doing in your own profession, professional career, how you've carved, because carved, uh, he must have seen you as being reasonably happy, I imagine. In your work and i think and therefore... he sees me very curmudgeonly <laughs> <laughs> well marcelo thank you for spending the time with us yeah, and where can people where, where can people follow you uh, um, if they want to uh, not just about these issues but other things that you have to uh, sure to, to, yeah, to say we've you, got you, a website is facialsurgerycenter.com that links okay. to all my different sites and then on on twitter um i'm at um Oh, forgot my Twitter. Handle. If you don't have it, okay, I'll put it on the show notes. No worries. <laughs> we'll have it there for, for the audience. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Okay. All right. Take care. Bye, guys. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Akkad and Coca Report. Subscribe for free on iTunes or Stitcher at akkadandcoca.com, where you'll find detailed show notes, our blog, and more. akkadandcoca.com.